You're listening to a podcast from Bayside Church International. Good morning. It's really great to see you. I, you know what? This this side is 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 the most popular side today. I don't the the uh, actually you're pretty well balanced. Well done. You've done that really well. Uh, some of you here are visiting today, and it's uh, great to have you uh, in our midst. Our church family would love to put their hands together for you and welcome you today. So, if you're visiting, if you're unfamiliar with a church environment, um, especially for you, it's great to um, have the sort of courage to come into a foreign environment. And uh, so, we really applaud you and thank you for being here. Uh, this is a special time for our week. We, uh, uh, some of those who see Sunday as it was always traditionally known as the first day of the week, and so we love to start our week afresh worshiping together. And um, as I fe- felt before the meeting, you know, we don't gather together in the name of a church. We've got a sign out the front that says Bayside, and that's so that people who are looking for us can help, can find us. It matches our website, it matches our name, but we don't come here gathering under the name of Bayside. We gather in the name of Jesus. And I love that theme coming out in our songs this morning. We gather in the old King James, I say, we gather unto him. We gather in him. And he is the one that joins us together. And I think worshipping him is such an amazing way to experience that. I'm sure Jay won't be bothered by me saying this, but I just felt in a worship time that I fell in love with another man. I think that's a beautiful thing. Good morning. Today, I'm just going to leave that there, Irene. That's right. I'm not going to explain that for the visitors. I'll just leave that there. Um, this morning, I have the privilege of starting a new preaching series that would take us through uh, March, April, through into Easter, um, Holy Week, whatever we call it, etc. And this series is essentially going to be focused on what is without doubt the most important thing ever. This series, in this next couple of weeks, will address the most important thing ever. So you better make sure you're here. And to draw your attention or to give you a clue as to that might be, what, what that might be, I want to draw your attention to our new website that was relaunched this week. Can we have a look at our website, Pete? This is one of the pages... It's not the first one though, the first one is our vision. Uh, this is one of the pages on our website that was re- launched this week under About. It talks about who we are as a church. It talks about our vision, our ethos, our journey and the least important thing, our leaders. But our vision is this, what it says here. Our vision is Jesus. And it's as simple as that. And our purpose is both to know him and to show him. Being Christian for us is far more than espousing a set of beliefs, attending religious services, or embracing the teachings of a historical figure. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ is alive and well, and enjoying an authentic relationship with him is our great calling, our great privilege, 
and our great joy. And as we look into the future, because that's what vision is, it's about what you see, it's about what you are looking forward to. As we look into the future, we just see more Jesus. We see ourselves and many others both experiencing and expressing ever-increasing dimensions of His love, His truth and His life. What do you see, Chad, in your future? Well, I want to see Jesus. The next section of our website has to do with our ethos. We explain it this way. It says, the distinct DNA and values of our church family stem largely from embracing what the Scriptures teach regarding identity. After all, it's on the rock-solid foundation of identity, both His and ours, that Jesus said, I will build my church. That's a quote from Matthew 16, when Peter has a revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus says, now you know who I am, this is who you are, and on that rock I will build my church. On the revelation of identity, knowing who Jesus is and knowing who we are because of Him, on the rock-solid revelation of identity, Jesus says, I'll build my church. In this way, dedication to our values is not an externally imposed commitment, you must behave like this, but it is a natural response from an internal conviction concerning who we are and whose we are. Knowing who we are and knowing whose we are, knowing who He is and knowing who we are and our values naturally come out of that. The most important thing that you can ever know, the most important thing you can ever experience, the most important thing you can ever come to terms with and accept is the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is the most important thing. Knowing who He is and who we are because of Him is the foundation on which the church is built. We cannot have a church without knowing Him. Church is not built on programs. Church is not built on tradition. Church is not built on administration, as helpful as all those things are. Church is built on Christ and Christ alone. For my hope is built on nothing less than on Him, the solid rock on which we stand. And the church community must be built on the person of Jesus, who He's revealed Himself to be, and in light of that, and in tandem with that, who we are because of who He is. The church is built on Christ. And secondly, knowing who He is personally knowing Him truly, knowing Him experientially. The Greek word for know is the word nosos. The word Gnostic comes from that, but whatever, that's inconsequential. It's knowing Him. It's that intimate knowing. It's like in the Old Testament in Genesis, and those of you doing the chronological Bible reading plan, you'll see that Adam, it says, slept with his wife Eve, but in some translations, it says Adam knew her. In fact, when Mary falls pregnant to Jesus, it says the same thing. It says, but Joseph did not know her. She was not known by a man. What does that mean? She did not have experience of that level of intimacy. That's the in, that is what it means to know Him, to experience Him intimately, to be acquainted with Him. And knowing Him is the only key and the only guarantee of experiencing eternal life. And that is why it is the most important thing. 
Because knowing Jesus is the only thing that counts for eternity. Or it's the basis from which anything else matters in eternity. Knowing Him is the only key knowing that unlocks that door. Knowing Him is the only guarantee of life eternal. Jesus said this, and this whole ethos of knowing Him and showing Him comes from John 17, verse 1 and 3. It says, After Jesus had said this, talking to His disciples, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted Him authority over all people that He may give eternal life to all those you have given Him. You've granted Him authority to give eternal life. Come on, say give. This is the same language that Paul echoes in Romans 6 where he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Eternal life is a gift that Jesus gives eternal life. He goes on to say, now this is eternal life, that they may know you. And that they may know you, the only true God, and that they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Him. Knowing Him is the key, the only guarantee of eternal life. And I think that's kind of important. Because eternal means everlasting. It means never ending. It means perpetual. It means permanent. It speaks of both the quality and a quantity of something. And in John's gospel particularly, it is used profoundly in the present tense. Eternal life is not something for the future. Eternal life is used in a present tense. John chapter 5, 24, Jesus says, Verily, or sorry, very truly... <laughs> Come on, some of you grew up on the King James. You know how I can do that. I don't know who Verily was, but he was there a lot in, in the crowd when Jesus was talking. Any, sir, any, this, this translation takes it out because it's a bit old-fashioned. I tell you the truth, this is an emphatic statement. That's why the Verily comes in. All right? It's an old Shakespearean King's English. Never mind. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Say, has. That's present tense. He who believes in me has. Not one day will have. No, he who believes in me has. The gift has already been given. Experiences and has it now. Has eternal life. He who believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from Death to life. The most literal translations, like Young's literal, says, has crossed over from the death to the life. There's a subtlety there that I can't explain today, but has crossed over from death to life. Eternal life is something that believers in Jesus have now. Eternal life is something we have now. And that is the most important thing. The same author says in 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that we declare. God has, has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you do have eternal life. 
What could be more important than that? The triviality of our lives on this planet, but a brief breath in slight of eternity, a brief pen stroke on an infinite and unfolding page that never ends. What could be more important than life eternal? And yet the scriptures declare life eternal is only found in knowing Jesus Christ. For God so loved the that he gave his only, that if you would believe in him, you would not perish but have To know Him is to believe in Him. To know Him is to trust Him. To know Him is to take Him at His word. To know Him is to acknowledge and accept who He is. Some of you know me, heard me preach for a while, you've heard me talk about knowing God's name and nature. His name and nature. This is what... Um, Jesus goes on to say in John 17, after he says, this is eternal life that they may know you. He says, Father, I've finished the work you've given me. I've revealed your name to people. How do we, what, to believe in him, what does it mean? It means to believe in his name and his nature. And that's what happened as you'll find this week reading Genesis to Abraham. Because Abraham in Genesis 12 is hearing God's voice speak to him. God's speaking to him and he's listening and he's following the guidance of that voice. But it's not until Melchizedek comes along that Melchizedek says to him the name of the God that's speaking to him. Because in those first couple of chapters, Genesis 12 and 13, God doesn't introduce himself to Abraham. He doesn't say, Hi Abraham, my name is, now go leave your father's house. He just says, leave your father's house. So Abram hears a voice not knowing who that voice belongs to. The turning point comes when Melchizedek comes to him and says, the name of the God who is blessing you is God Most High, El Elyon, the God of all gods. And he is the one who's delivered your enemies into your hands. And that, that is when the turning point in Abram's life comes and it says, Abram believed God and he was declared righteous. So Abram had a relationship with God for two chapters, but he didn't know God. He did not enter into a right relationship with God until he knew his name and nature. And then he believed in that God and he was declared righteous. So that's why some of us, you look back on your life before you met Jesus, and as you look over your shoulder, you say, actually, God was with me for years. I can see God's hand in my life, but I did not know him until someone came to me and said, his name is Jesus. And this is what he's like. This is his name. This is his nature. That's the God that's been tracking you. Believe in him. So believing in him, knowing him, is appreciating, accepting, acknowledging his name and appreciating, accepting and acknowledging his nature. That's why the scripture says it is when we confess the name of the Lord. Those who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. That's why Jesus' name is so important. And that's why Jesus' twofold purpose when he came to this planet was to reveal the nature of God and the name of God and then secondly, to reconcile us to that God. So everything he did for three years of his miracle working ministry was just to demonstrate who God is. What's God like? He turns water into wine, that's what God's like. What's God like? 
Oh, he raises dead people, that's what God's like. What's God like? He takes a prostitute who's pulling her clothes back on and says, I don't condemn you, but don't be so silly as to keep doing this. But I'm not the one, th- I won't be throwing stones at you today. What's God like? He's the one who picks up a piece of ear off the ground that belonged to a man who hated him and wanted him dead. And he says, I know that you hate me, but I'm kind to you and I'll heal you. That's what God's like. Jesus said he is kind to the ungrateful and he is kind to the wicked. That's what God's like. And that's the God that Jesus revealed. He revealed the nature of God and the reason he went to the cross was so that he may provide a way that reconciliation, both legal and literal, reconciliation can be made, that we can know him and know him intimately without hindrance of sin that kept us separate for so long. Nothing is more important than Jesus. Nothing is more important than Jesus. And if there was one book in the Bible to understand who Jesus is, and to encourage us to believe in Him so that we may have eternal life. If there's one book that is dedicated wholly and solely to doing that, while in, part of me wants to say the whole book's about that, that's why we're doing a chronological Bible reading plan, so you can see the whole story, okay? But if there's one of the 66 books that is devoted exclusively to that job, it's the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. And if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the end of the book because sometimes you can't understand the beginning unless you look at the end. So let's do that. Open up to the end of John, chapter 20. Is this okay? You with me? Have I started a bit serious? I'm not stern, all right? I'm just focused. I'll loosen up a bit later. John, chapter 20. It's so funny, this book sort of comes to a close in chapter 20 and then chapter 21 is added as a bit of an epilogue. Uh, but that's a whole literary thing we don't have time to go into. But anyway, John 20. The end of that chapter, verse 30 says this, Jesus, verse 30, performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and so that by believing, you may have life in His name. 20 chapters, the author finally explains why he wrote those chapters. I'm writing you these things, I've, I've chosen specific details, so that whoever reads this may believe Jesus is who He said He is. And when you believe in Him, you will have life in his name. Today we're going to start a series based on the Gospel of John, all about the person of Jesus, with the hope that our faith in who Jesus is increases. If you're here today and you don't trust Jesus, you don't believe Jesus, you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're that individual or whether you've been walking with Jesus for 60, 70 years, no matter who we are, that our trust and faith and our awareness and our acceptance of who Jesus is will increase over these next two to three months. Are you willing to come on that journey with us? Because Jesus is the most important 
thing. And I want to do three things this morning. First thing is I want to talk about the purpose as an introduction to the series. I want to talk about the purpose of John, which I've just kind of done. That's free. The second thing I want to do in a moment is talk about some peculiarities of this gospel because it's a little bit different to the other ones. And I want to share a few of those things just to get you thinking because I'm not afraid of thinking people. It's purpose, it's peculiarities, and thirdly, I want to finish with the most important thing is, which is the most important thing, which is proclaiming the person that this book is all about. So that's where we're going. All right? Do you need to prepare yourself again? All right, come on, let's pray. Holy, holy, holy. It's actually in this book, Lord, that you say, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will lead you into all truth and He will reveal things concerning me, things that you actually did not reveal about yourself. The Holy Spirit does today. And so, Holy Spirit, we're open to your teaching. We're open to your leading. We're open to your guidance. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken every, all of our senses today, that we would know you in experiential reality, that I would hear you with my ears, I would see you with my eyes, I would feel you with my senses, I would taste you and see that you're good. I will even smell your very fragrance, being aware of your atmosphere around me. Holy Spirit, I want to know Jesus. I want to know the Father. So help me. I give myself to your leading and your learning today. Can anyone say, that's for me? All right. Good morning. The purpose of the book of John is to reveal Jesus so that we may believe in him and by believing we may have eternal life in his name. The peculiarities of John are really interesting. Those of you who have read the Bible for any length of time already know that John is a little bit different. This gospel, the fourth gospel, is quite different to all the others. In fact, all four gospels are unique and all four gospels have their own bent, which I might explain a bit later. They all have their unique purpose, they're written by different people, they're written quite likely to different audiences or different target audiences. So they're all different, but particularly the Gospel of John really stands out. And that's why theologians call Matthew, Mark and Luke, they group them together in what is known as the, starts with an S, synoptic Gospels. Synoptics, the Greek, comes from the Greek word where we get synopsis, okay? So it basically means the general view. Here's the general view. Here's the synopsis. And so Matthew, Mark and Luke are the synoptic Gospels because they basically follow the same timeline. They share much of the same material and people argue about whether Matthew or Mark were written first or the earliest of church fathers believe that Matthew was. And, um, and, but basically they do share very, very similar framework. John is exceptionally different to those three and stands out for a number of reasons. Number one, the purpose of the book, as we've just said, is that you may believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And so those words, believe and life, are really strong in John. The word believe occurs over 90 times in John, which is more than Matthew, Mark and Luke put together. 
Okay, so when you, if you read John, it's like believe, 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 90 times in 22 chapters, all about believing, more than Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke put together. The other word that's mentioned a lot is the word life, believe for eternal life. So the word Zoe, life, is mentioned three times more in John than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke put together. So there's a real emphasis on believing for life. It's one of John's peculiarities. But there's a few other things about the Gospel of John. Much of the content and the writing style is very different. Over 90% of the content of John is original. Not in Matthew, Mark and Luke. Okay, Over 90% of it is not found in Matthew, Mark and Luke, including chapter 14 to 17, this big long speech... Jesus' farewell speech, all in red, all right? You flick through your Bible, and say, oh, there's a bunch of red chapters there. None of that content is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The record of John spends a lot of time uh, focusing on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and the area around Jerusalem, Judea, whereas the other Gospels spend a lot of time focusing on Jesus' ministry out in the boondocks in Galilee and the fishing villages, all right? It's all about Jesus in Capernaum and Jesus in Galilee, which is out bush, okay, where Jesus comes from. It's all about that. And then he finally comes to Jerusalem to get killed. But John spends heaps of time of Jesus coming into, in and out of Jerusalem like two, three or four times and doing miracles and ministering in Jerusalem. So the focus of John has a lot more to do about Judea and that surrounding area. And so it includes stories that are just not in the others. There's a lot of things in John that uh, are omitted, that Matthew, Mark and Luke focus on. This gospel omits any parables. In the gospel of John, there are no parables of Jesus. There's no genealogy. There's no record of his birth, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration or his ascension. There's no casting out demons. There's no appointing of the apostles. There's no great commission in John. There's no prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which Matthew, Mark and Luke all speak about, even though the temple is mentioned in John more than any other gospel. He spends a lot of time around the temple, a lot of time preaching there, a lot of time ministering there, a lot of time dealing with people around the temple. But this gospel never records his prediction that one day in 40 years that whole thing was coming down. So there's a lot of things that are omitted in the Gospel of John. And there's two main reasons for this. Why is it so different? The first reason most often given is because the author of this book, John, had the other Gospels. It was the last one written. And so because he had Matthew, Mark and Luke, he wanted to write stuff that they didn't write. That makes sense, doesn't it? So he says at the end, I write you these things. I'm very selective on what I've written. I've written you these things that you might believe because after all, Matthew, Mark and Luke have written a bunch of stuff and I didn't want to repeat that. Okay? So that's why most people believe that John is the last of the Gospels written, probably in the late 60s. Okay? Uh, people, some people think even later than that, but when John talks about the temple, he talks about it in present tense. So he talks about at the temple there is a pool called Bethesda. He talks about it as if it were standing. So it was obviously written before the temple came down in 70 AD. So it was written probably in the late 60s. So the one reason it's so different is because it was written later than the others. But the second reason it could be so different is because the author is so different. There's something really different about this author that's very different to the other guys who were following Jesus. Which begs the question... Who's the author of John? 
<laughs> Normally, my, the answer to any complicated question is Jesus, but it's not in this case. Do you want to come back next week and find out? Or is that, is it, are you believe I'm asking a tricky question? The reason we call it John, it, it, no author in here identifies himself by name. It's not like one of Paul's letters where Paul always says, Hi, my name's Paul and I'm writing to this church. He doesn't do that, okay? So he doesn't identify himself by name. But the reason we've historically called it John is because, two reasons. Number one, it has a very similar style to the book of Revelation. Okay, And we know from chapter 1 of Revelation, he mentions his name three times, that Revelation is written by a guy called John. And so you look at that similarity in writing and go, well, if John wrote Revelation, then it looks like the same guy wrote John, uh, wrote <laughs> the fourth gospel, therefore we'll call it John, after that guy. But the question then is, which John? Because John is the most common name of the first century. All right? Okay, you go to school in the first century and half the kids in your class are John. Right? It's like going to Korea and they're all called Kim. That's just how it works, all right? So they're all John. So which John wrote the Gospel of John? And this is where church tradition is actually split. Because some people, like Arrhenius, who was around about 150, 180 AD, said that the John of Revelation and the John of the Gospels was the Apostle John. He was the thunder brother for James, Okay? He was a fisherman's son of Zebedee. He was one of the twelve. He was that John is the one that wrote the gospel. But there was a church father 50 to 80 years beforehand who, who distinguishes, his name was Papias, and he distinguishes in his writings between John the Apostle and John of Revelation. John the Apostle and the elder John. He distinguishes between those two men. And he was a disciple of this elder John. So there is debate way back then in the second century all right, as to which John it was that wrote this. Was it the Apostle John, the fisherman? Or was it another man, random guy called the Elder John? And which John is that? Where did he come from? Can I just do one thing? Okay. You know I like to keep the main thing the main thing, but every now and again I like to take a little detour. So if I tell you I'm taking a detour, can I just do that just for five minutes? I want to share... Okay, I want, I want to... I'll share something with you that's not controversial. It's just a bit... Um, unconventional. All right, unconventional. We can take this off the tape, all right, in case people stone me as heretic. I want to share with something with you that's a little unconventional. Something that is an interest I had about a year or two ago, because I'm writing a book at the moment about hermeneutics, about understanding the Bible. And one of the main points in there is that you need to understand the author and the audience. You need to know who's writing and who are they writing to. And so this is interests me. When I approach a book down, I'm like, well, hang on, who's writing this? And so the question of the author of John is interesting. Is it John the Apostle or is there another guy called John who's actually a different John? Who's that man? And the Gospel of John is really interesting when it reveals who the author is. So can I, I'm just going to share something with you for a few minutes, take you on a journey. Okay? Don't, don't switch off. This will, this will get you thinking. I'm, not, I'm going to preach it from down here so you don't think it's not preaching, it's just talking, all right? <laughs> At the, the last book, the last chapter of John, the author identifies himself, now not by name, but by something else. Okay? John 21 Verse 20, Peter, these guys are down fishing by the lake after Jesus' resurrection. 
And in, in ch- chapter 20, ver- 21, verse 20, it says, Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, hey, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you, Pete? You follow me. Because of this, a rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He said, if I wanted him to remain until I return, what's that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. So who is the man that wrote the Gospel of John? He is the disciple whom... So all we have to do is look in the Bible and find out if there's anyone that is described uniquely as being a man, a disciple whom Jesus loved. If we can find that man, then it gives us a clue as to who this John might be. Maybe he had another name, because how many of you know in the first century sometimes, uh, as you read the book of Acts especially, it says, this guy's name, whose also name was this. So could there be another man, could John have another name? All we know about him is that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. So the question is, is there anyone in the Bible that's described as being the disciple that Jesus loved? Turn with me to John 11. I'm not preaching, I'm just talking, I'm just discussing. John 11, verse 1, same book, same author. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary, whose brother Lazarus nailed sick, was the same one who put perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for the glory of God, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and... Is there a man in the Bible that the Bible says Jesus loved? You know the story. He dies. Jesus rocks up late to the funeral. Good one. And uh, then calls him out of the grave. Okay, But before he does that, he weeps because of the emotion of the moment for Mary. He really loves these people. Watch what happens in verse 33. It said, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, verse 33, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he Loved who? Verse 35, why is it on the screen? See how he loved him. There's only one man in the Bible that is named as being uniquely loved by Jesus. Not the apostle whom Jesus loved, but a disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's in this chapter where his name is Lazarus. 
I've just got you thinking, that's all. Because <laughs> the really interesting thing, as you read through chapter 12, is that Lazarus, who's not mentioned in Matthew, Mark and Luke, because of this miracle, it says that heaps of Jews came to believe in Jesus. The whole triumphal entry, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and there's whole crowds coming together, John chapter 12 said the whole reason there was crowds is because they'd heard about the resurrection of Lazarus and they had come to see Lazarus. It also says in the next chapter that because they were coming to see Lazarus, the Jews wanted, the Jewish leaders were seeking a way to kill him. So there was a bounty on the head of Jesus and on the head of Lazarus because Lazarus's testimony was the greatest evangelistic tool Jerusalem had ever seen. The testimony of Lazarus, and you read all about it in chapter 12, the testimony of Lazarus's resurrection meant that hundreds, who knows, maybe thousands of people were coming to Jesus because of the resurrection of that one man. And the last we hear of him, Lazarus, is in chapter 12, when he is reclining at a table with Jesus and there's a bounty on his head, reclining at a table with Jesus. That's chapter 12. The next chapter, chapter 13, Jesus is having a meal, another meal, and there is someone reclining next to him at this meal. And that man is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. It is the last mention of Lazarus in chapter 12 and the first mention of the disciple whom Jesus loved in chapter 13. This disciple whom Jesus loved is first mentioned then. He's not mentioned anywhere before. That's the first time we see that term. And then about six or seven times through the rest of the gospel, the author says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Another interesting thing about this gospel is that there is this constant competition between the disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter. You remember? Okay, so even at the Last Supper, the disciple whom Jesus loved is sitting right next to Jesus and Peter doesn't ask, who will betray you? He says, oh, can you ask Jesus for me? It's this disciple's way of saying, I'm closer to Jesus than he is. When Jesus gets arrested, it says that, uh, in all the Gospels, it says a disciple got a sword and cut off a man's ear. But it's only this Gospel that tells us that disciple's name was Peter. It's like the other Gospels are trying to protect his identity. Whereas this Gospel says, yeah, I'll tell you who it was, it was Peter again. That's who it was. When Jesus gets arrested, he goes to Caiaphas's house, who's the high priest. And it says that Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved follow Jesus to Caiaphas's house and the guards say... Peter, I don't know who you are, you stay there. But the disciple whom Jesus loved is known to the high priest, so he goes in. And then he comes out and says, okay, Pete, you can come with me. This constant thing of, I'm first, <laughs> Peter is second, which is profoundly interesting. Because in the book of Acts, when Peter and the apostle John heal a man in the temple. They get brought before the high priest and the high priest does not know who they are. The high priest listens to them and says, these, all I know is that these men have been with Jesus. 
The high priest did not know the Apostle John, but the Gospel of John says the disciple whom Jesus loved was known to the high priest. Which is another reason I believe the Apostle whom Jesus loved could not be the Apostle John. There's a difference between the Apostle John and the author John. Could it be that Lazarus, this mystery figure, who there's a bounty on his head, suddenly disappears from the pages of Scripture and becomes known as, by his own terms, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and then later on, just John. Because it's too deadly to keep calling him Lazarus. That said, he's the only man that's at the crucifixion. Because the other Gospels say that all the twelve ran away, but there was one man there, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That said, he was the first one that ran to the tomb and beat Peter. And he believed that Jesus is raised from the dead when he saw something in the tomb. What did he see? The grave cloths. Who had personal experience with grave cloths? It says there that he believed. The other Gospels say that the Apostle John didn't believe until Jesus appeared to them all in a room. But this disciple believed, not the Apostle John. All right, that's too much for one day. Okay. I don't care. It's just a bit of fun. All right. Could it? What? What? All I, this, is, this is what I said last week. Good teaching should secure you in what is true. And you're confident, man. I know that's true. I did that for the first 10 minutes. Eternal life is in Jesus. Whoa, I'm confident. But good teaching should also get you curious. Because it's only by you asking your own questions and doing your own discovery that you own truth that you find. And so if, if you don't remember anything I've said, because I've been on a journey the last two years looking at these things, I haven't shared it with you because, you know, you, just, you have your own little research going on and you've got your own little things you're working on the side. But I want to say these things, my only intent is to stir your curiosity. Who is John? Who is this author? Why does this man not write like a fisherman from out, the, out Galilee? Why does he write like a full-on mystic who has heavenly experiences like in the Revelation, is it possible because he was actually dead for four days? He'd already experienced death? Is that why he was the only man brave enough to be at the cross? I've already died, what can you do to me? Is that why a rumour existed that this disciple will never die? Why would you say he'll never well, he's already died. Maybe he'll never die again. All right, that's enough. Okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come up here and I'm going to get on with the main thing. This is the main message of the Gospel of John. Jesus. And we know who he is. The authors of the, of the books of the Bible is always a subject of discussion and has been for centuries. And none of what I've shared with you today is original. It's been around for hundreds of years. The authors, but the ultimate author of the scripture is God Himself. The humans are just the scribes. All right? The ultimate author is God Himself. And when you approach His Word, we do so with that great confidence. The one of the reasons that the Gospel of John is so different, it was written later. Maybe the author had this whole new realm of experience that the other guys just didn't have. 
But number three, the reason the Gospel of John is written differently, the reason all four Gospels are written differently, is because they each display a different major aspect of who Christ is. And our church fathers have spoken about this for centuries. A couple of years ago, I did a message, some of you remember it, we built our whole theme around it one year, about the four faces of Ezekiel, the four faces of the heavenly creatures. Do you remember that? A lion, an ox, a man and an eagle. Ezekiel, they're seen in Revelation. My pitch to you that year was that as Christians, we all have those faces. We live our Christian life, sometimes like a lion, sometimes like an ox, sometimes like a man, sometimes like an eagle. Church fathers have told us for years that those are the four faces of the Gospels. That Matthew, the focus of the Gospel of Matthew, is Jesus the Lion. Because he is the King of Kings. Matthew 1 begins, verse 1, by saying, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. Before he's the son of Abraham, he is the son of David. Because the Gospel of Matthew is all about Jesus being royal. Jesus being king, it begins by identifying him as the son of David, a royal lineage, and it finishes with him saying, all authority has been given to me. Jesus is king in the gospel of Matthew, and that is why the word kingdom appears over and over and over again, because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the king of kings. The gospel of Mark does not have a lineage for Jesus. Because the Gospel of Mark is the face of the ox. It paints the picture of Jesus being a servant. It is the Gospel that tells us, Jesus, I did not come to be served as a king. I came to serve. I came as a servant. And the reason that you don't have a genealogy in Mark is because nobody cares about a slave. No one cares about their genealogy. It doesn't matter. They exist for one reason, and it's to perform a function. And that is the story of Mark. Luke's gospel is different again. It's the face of a man. And it does have a genealogy that chases Jesus' line past David all the way to Adam. Because the focus of the gospel of Luke is Jesus' humanity, which is why a lot of the nativity stories come out of Luke. Okay, Because it's all about Jesus being born as one of us. He was born a man. The focus of Luke is the man. But the focus of the book of John, lion, ox, man, eagle, the focus of the book of John is about him being the eternal, supreme spirit, God, Yahweh himself. The focus of the book of this gospel is that Jesus is divine. And that is the Jesus that we worship. Because what starts in John 1 as saying the Word became flesh finishes in about chapter 19 or 20 when Thomas sees Jesus and says, you are my Lord and you are my God. And he bows down and worships him. John chapter 1, Jesus is divine. Can I read some of John 1 to you? Come on. This is now preaching now. This is the good stuff. Open your hearts to hear and to see who he is. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory of the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John the Baptist said, He comes after me, but He was actually before me. The reason He comes after me, but He's before me, is because this is the eternal Word of God that has become flesh for us. And out of the fullness of His grace, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. The Gospels were written in Greek, so they needed to communicate to people that understood Greek, but they were written by people who had Hebrew thinking. And so the word there for word is the word logos, which the Greeks had a really full-on understanding of. They believed that chaos could be ordered with word and with thought. Okay? Thought and word. You think something, speak it, and chaos can come. Uh, order can come out of chaos. It's a very Greek, Hellenistic way of thinking. So logos is used. But it is undeniable that as you read these verses, there is allusions to Genesis and the Hebrew way of thinking. Life, light, creation. Okay? Not only is there allusions to the creation story, but there is also allusions here to Abraham and his encounter with God. What's the deal with God's Word being God? What's the deal with... Because I, Chad, and my words are different. They just are. I can say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. That's not me, okay? But he, they have this understanding that the Word was God in the beginning. And that Word is a person. John did not come out with that idea on his own. Like everything, it originates in the book of origins. Can I show you something awesome? Luke, I'm going to show you something awesome. Genesis chapter 15. Do you have your Bible, mate? Genesis 15. You're going to read this this week in your Bible reading, okay? Watch this. Genesis 15 verse 1. After this... After Abram meets Melchizedek, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. What is a vision? It is something you see. What did he see? The He saw the word of the Lord. This is the first time the phrase word of the Lord is mentioned. He saw the word of the Lord. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and Eliezer will be my heir? Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Notice it doesn't say God spoke to him. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord said, not God spoke to him and said, the word of the Lord that he saw in a vision came to him. And the word of the Lord said, holy, holy, holy 
This man will not be your heir, but a son is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside. Who is the he? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. The word of the Lord said something. And the word of the Lord is a person called he who took Abram out and showed him a vision. The word of the Lord is a person. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the stars. And he said, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord. Who is the he? The word of the Lord. Could it be that right back here in the Genesis story, we see this amazing picture of Christ the word of the Lord, who says, I am the Lord, but that word of the Lord is a person who is distinct from the Lord, but still says, I am the Lord. Holy, 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 come on. God has set us up for centuries. God has set us up. When we read John 1, it says the word was God and was with God, but was God, but was distinct from Him and then took on a body, that is not a new idea. The Word of the Lord who says, I am God, but who still speaks on God's behalf, came to Abram. Abram saw Him and He, the Word of the Lord, took Him and showed Him His story in the stars. Could it be that Abram met The wonders of the mysterious God who has revealed himself to humankind through centuries. This is the God that we are called to know. A God who reveals mysteries. A God throughout histories. And his name is I Am. His name is I Am. And that name, Jesus says in the book of John, he says, Father, the name that you have is the name you've given me. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the great I am. And I worship Jesus because I am means he is self-existent. God has no origins. God does not have a beginning. Everything you see with your eyes is a created thing. It has a beginning and it will have an ending. But God has no origin. In the beginning, God was. God has no origin. He always was. We grow up in school with an evolutionary mindset that talks about different, you know, up the top, you know, down the bottom, you've got amoebas and then cockroaches, right? And then insects and then, and then different types of animals that get higher and higher and eventually you've got chimpanzees and then humans and just above humans, you've got dolphins because they're better than us. And then just above dolphins, now that we're Christians, we see angels and then above angels somewhere, we see God. It's rubbish. God is in a category all on his own. He is not a created thing. He is the eternal I am, the uncreated one. He is distinct from all things created. God is self-existent. 
Jesus has no beginning and no ending because he is the self-existent one. Being self-existent, he is self-sufficient. And that's why I worship him. I don't worship him because he needs me. Christ don't need nothing. Every relationship he has with anything is voluntary. He did not come to exist by anything and he is not dependent upon anything to survive because Jesus says in the Gospel of John, the Father has life in himself. Everything else has life because God breathed the breath of life into it, Genesis 2 and 3. But God has life in himself. He is relying upon nothing and nobody, nothing external. Light can disappear and God will still exist. Breath can disappear. God will still exist. No atmosphere can hold him because unlike you and me, he is an uncreated and completely self-sufficient God. That's why I worship Jesus because he's completely unique. I worship him because he's eternal. He is not bound by time. In the beginning was the word. God exists outside of time. Time exists within him. Because time is a series of changes. That's how you measure time. The clock ticks. The sun or the earth move. Things change. That's what time is. It's progression. It's change. I, the Lord, never change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Time does not affect him. And that's why when they come to, they, they come to Jesus in the book of John, and they say, are you better than Abram? Abraham, our forefather, and he says, you know what? Before Abraham was, I am. Now I believe that to mean before Abraham was, I am. I existed before him. I spoke to him. Thank you very much. I was that guy. The word of the Lord <laughs> came to him. But before Abram was, I am. Infinite, eternal God from everlasting to everlasting. And that's the Jesus I worship. I worship a Jesus who is not constrained by space. Because he's not only eternal in terms of time, he is infinite. He is measureless. To assume God has a measure means that you assume a limitation in him. Because a measurement has a limit. It goes from there to there and then it stops. That's a measure. God is measureless. Infinite. Can your mind understand that? Of course it can't because you're over here. You're in the cockroach pile, all right? In the dolphin pile. That's where you are. We have our brain, our minds cannot understand the infinite nature of God. In the beginning was the Word, and all things are held together, Hebrews says, by His mighty power. Jesus is infinite, and that means every quality that He has is infinite. When the Scripture says God is love, that's why we can say his love has no bounds. Because love is not an entity that he has. He's only got limited reserves. No, love is who he is. And if God is infinite, that means his love is infinite. If God is kind, it means his kindness is infinite. And as we read through the Gospel of John, as Jesus reveals who he is, he talks about his names. We're worshipping the name of Jesus this morning. He says, I am the bread of life. That bread is infinite. I am the shepherd of the sheep whose reach has an infinite reach. 
I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. Everything he is and has is infinite. And that's the Jesus that I fall in love with. That's the Jesus that I worship. Altogether different. I love the fact that he's king. But even the king picture has a limitation because it's a human picture. And every king that Israel ever had died. I love the fact that he's a servant. But servants only exist to do a task and then you're done with them. It has a limitation. I love the fact that he's a man, but every man that you and I know will die. And that's why I love the book of John. Because in the book of John, he is revealed as the infinite, eternal, supreme, measureless one. That is why we worship Jesus. The Word of God, God in very self, made in human form, completely human, completely divine and infinitely worthy of worship. I need the musos to come for two reasons. Number one is to stop me and number two is to give us the ability to worship and respond to him. Don't be distracted by them. Just look at me. I'm much better looking than Dan anyway. I always say, I want to, when I minister, I want to do so to people's heads, hearts and hands. I want you to walk away with something in your head going, I'll learn something. Or, I'm going to think about something. I want something, hopefully, to touch your heart today. And I can't do that with my words. But I pray that today that the Spirit of God takes those words and ministers to your heart. Because I don't care if you remember anything I said, but I care that you love Jesus. I care that you know Him. I don't care if you don't pat me on the back. I'd rather you not. It's very sweaty right now. But I don't care if any of that happens. But I do care that you know him because knowing Jesus is the most important thing. And to your hands today, all I can say, how do you respond to a Jesus who is king? Well, you serve him. How do you respond to a Jesus who is servant? Well, you receive from him. How do you respond to a Jesus who is a man? Will you identify him with him? You communicate with him. How do you respond to a Jesus who is God Almighty? You just worship him. What else is there? But to worship the one true God. This is eternal life, is to know him. To know him is to trust him. To know him is to believe in him. To know him is to serve him. To know him is to love him. To know Him is to worship Him. And I hope you fall in love with another man today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would seal not just principles and words in people's hearts, but you would seal the very person of Jesus in our hearts and our lives today. We would see you, we would hear you, we would know you, no matter who we are in our relationship with you today, that we would know you more, that we would be drawn closer to you. And Lord, as best as I can, I say from the depths of my heart, I want to know you. Like Paul, who knew you, but just said, I want to know you. I give up everything else that I may know you because that is the most important thing. So Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to me in greater measure.
Even now, I open my heart, I open my ears. Thank you for who you are. Unchanging and infinite one. I love you today. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.